Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for the freedom we have in Christ. That the law and, and the power of the grave, the power of death, they no longer have a grasp on those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Lord, that you are bigger. Bigger than we can completely understand, completely get. Lord, you give us your word that we might know something of you. Help us to come before your word with humility. By your spirit, would you open our hearts and our eyes to what you have to say to us, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going from baptisms to doctrine. <laughs> doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. What is doctrine and why talk about it? Our doctrine is our teachings or beliefs regarding God and his character and his nature and his activities in and out of time, space, history, and the future, all that God is. As we read the Bible, we, we gather information together that we find throughout the entirety of God's word. And then we compile that knowledge together into mentally and, and philosophically consumable statements, things that we can somewhat understand or try to grasp. Theological ideas like the Trinity, as we read in God's Word how God describes Himself and as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and each one of these three has personality and deity. And so we put that all together and say, God has presented Himself to us as a triune God. We talk about these kinds of things for the very reasons we discussed last week, we want to understand and hold firm to the truth about God and his ways, whether I like them or not, whether I fully comprehend them or not, because he is God and I am not. And our beliefs regarding God should come not from ourselves or the culture and philosophies around us, but from himself and his word, as he, the Lord Almighty, describes himself to us. His word through which he's communicated himself to us in a way that we can begin, begin to understand who he is and what he does. Think about it for a minute. In reading his word, in reading scripture, the finite, that's you and me, can begin to comprehend the infinite. We can begin to understand God, which is why doctrine can be sometimes challenging as we process together ideas and concepts of the infinite and eternal as they've been revealed to us in Scripture into coherent doctrines that we can grasp and teach, meanwhile sifting out any influences that may try to challenge the truths that God has revealed about himself and his plan of salvation to us. Our knowledge of orthodox biblical teaching 
guards our hearts and minds against those who would attempt to sway us into believing something false about God. Grasping right doctrine that is in accord with the Word of God protects us so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So today we're going to take a, we're going to go back to the passage that we actually looked at last week. We're going to look at a portion of it in order to look at a doctrine that comes to us straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 35. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. John 6, 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. In this passage, Jesus makes two deep and rich doctrinal statements. Look with me at verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In this one verse, he tells us that the Father gives people to Jesus for salvation. And anyone who comes to Jesus will not be lost. Those two statements, in this single verse, we receive the doctrines of the necessary and efficacious call of God and the security of the saints. The necessary and efficacious call of God and the security of the saints. And for today, we will only look at the first of these, that necessary and efficacious call of God to salvation in our hearts and in our lives. It is necessary because apart from this call of God, we would not look twice at salvation in Jesus Christ. Without God's prompting, without his opening our eyes to the truth to to see, we honestly want nothing to do with him. It is efficacious. Because when our eyes are open to the truth of Jesus Christ, they are opened to such a degree that we would not choose anything but salvation in Jesus Christ. The, the choice is made obvious. It is made so clear that we wouldn't want anything less than what Jesus offers. I have to say I, I agree with a uh, scholar by the name of Bancroft in, in that I prefer to stay away from that Calvinistic word irresistible. They, they call it irresistible grace. And I, I prefer instead using the words effectual or efficacious. I like these words better than irresistible because I, I feel that irresistible carries with it implications of force. You cannot resist. You must. Therefore you will. Right? It it implies that our salvation is somehow compulsory in the hands of God. But God, as we read through Scripture, we can see that God did not create robots. He created people in his own image that we might love him as he loves us. Here in our passage, there are actually several verses that we read today that teach us about this call of God on the hearts and minds of people. Verse 37 again, it says... All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 65. And he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
some hard verses there. According to these, God the Father gives, draws, and grants that our eyes would be open to the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And no one, verse 65, no one comes to Jesus apart from this effectual call of God. This idea can be very difficult for us. It tends to turn our stomachs a little bit because we like our independent free will. We are Americans. Land of liberty, right? I'm a self-made man. We don't like the idea that God chooses, God selects. He calls only certain people to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. This is difficult for us to, to take this doctrine being closely tied to election and predestination. It evokes in us an emotional response regarding propriety and justice because in our finite limitations, we don't see everything that God sees. We don't know everything that God knows. And it's hard for us to understand how can God do this? How does all of this fit together? So, before we hang our hats on three little verses, not that three little verses aren't enough when it's coming from the mouth of God, right? But before we do that, do we find this doctrine of the call of God anywhere else in Scripture? Philippians 3.14 I press on toward the, the goal for the prize of the Upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there we see this call of God. Okay, but it's, it doesn't really describe it as necessary or efficacious there, does it? But there's the presence of the call of God. All right, let's move on. 1 Corinthians one nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hmm. Now that one's a little more intense, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Romans eight twenty nine through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This call this of God upon our lives is part of this process that God has laid out for your salvation. Second Thessalonians two thirteen to fourteen. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you. There it is again, he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes abundantly clear in these verses, and there's far more we can pull out. I just don't have five weeks to preach to you, unless you really want to sit there. It becomes clear through these verses that it is God who calls us to faith in Jesus Christ according to his will. We even saw it when we were going through the book of Acts about a year or so ago. 
Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There is a work of God upon our hearts that we would listen, that we would pay attention, that we would come to an understanding of just what the gospel is. Over and again throughout Scripture, we see that it is the Lord who turns our hearts to himself. As the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the truth, that we might receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We love him because he first loved us. We respond in faith to his initiating work in our hearts and in our minds. With this amount of confirmation in God's word, this is not a teaching that we can quickly set aside no matter how much we like our own free will. But I thought God offers salvation to everyone. Didn't God, and I will quote him here, so love the world that he gave his only son? There is a general call for all mankind to salvation. He sincerely offers salvation to Everyone on this planet Earth who has ever been born. We see this call, this general call to salvation in passages like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or Isaiah. Let's go Old Testament, 45, 22. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God's heart is that all people would be reconciled to him. That is what he wants. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, God our Savior desires a few people. All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter. 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He even commands it in, in the book of Acts again, 17, verses 30 and 31, as Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. To repent. There's a general call to all mankind to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is open to anyone who will receive Him. And it is the desire of God's heart. And it, it's in this general call to all mankind that we see a terrible fault in our free will. Because God has given us a free will. 
not even God gets everything he wants. Because with our free will, we all choose sin. It's our choice, and that's what we choose. Our free will is broken as much as we love it. It is broken with our inheritance of a sin nature from Adam. We are apathetic and disinclined to choose God of our own accord. We, we just won't. We want nothing to do with him. We want what we want. We set God aside. And in the general call to salvation, we find that we are even more culpable now for our sins than we ever were before. We are more responsible now than we ever were because there is now this opportunity laid out for us. And, and not only do we choose sin in the first place, but given the option for salvation, given that choice for reconciliation to the God of, who created us, we turn the offer down. We don't want it. We do not want salvation in and of ourselves. Here's how bleakly, how depraved God describes our free will in his word. Psalm 14, verses 2 to 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all, all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Do you hear that repetition? All have turned aside. None who does good. Not even one. Just in case you were thinking, maybe, no. Isaiah 53. All we, writer, the author, includes himself in this group. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead. We've talked about it before. Dead things don't do much, do they? I have yet to see the squirrel in the middle of the road stand up and walk away. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, spiritually dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans chapter 3. All, there's that word again, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter who you are. Everybody is under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's you and me in our Oh, so beloved, free will. In his word, God makes it more than clear 
the truth of our inability to freely choose salvation in Jesus Christ. In our passage before us today, verses 63 and 65, together they say, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This doctrine of the necessary and efficacious call of God to salvation is very hard for many of us to take because it messes with our pride as it puts our sin and our bent toward wickedness on full display. God confronts it head on, steeped in it, we want to be able to say that we have something to do with our salvation. That the day I stand before God and God says to me, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm going to be able to say to him, look, I went to church. Look, I did good deeds. I was a good deed doer. I gave food and, and clothing to the poor. I chose God. I chose salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be able to say to God. God makes it abundantly clear in his word. Apart from me, you chose sin. Verse 28 of, of that chapter 6 of John that we've been looking at. This is some that we read last week. Now the, the people there, they, they, they gather to Jesus. They loved that, the loaves that he fed them with earlier. And so they start talking to him. And verse 28 says, Then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And now Jesus is going to answer them, and he's going to tell them exactly what they need to do. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Just have faith in Jesus. That's it. So what's their reaction? What do they do? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe in you? They start leading in other directions. They want nothing to do with simple faith in Jesus Christ. Here they're given perfect opportunity. That general call is right there. Here is faith in Jesus. And they say, no thanks. I want to do something. It's got to be mine. Did you see how quickly they turn to themselves when they hear the gospel opportunity? It's important that we hear this concept of God's call and understand it, not only because we find it in God's word, because it affects our lives, it affects our walks, it humbles us before God. And it also gives us a confidence in our salvation, and it also drives us to share the gospel. Humbles us before God, it gives us a confidence in our salvation, and it drives us to share the gospel. We are humbled before God as we realize, conceptualize this in your mind, realize that we were his enemies, hated him, would rather him dead, sinful and depraved to our core, spiritually dead, separated from our creator, and wanting nothing to do with him. While we were still there, the Father sent His Son to die on a cross in your place, in our place, in my place. 
And after that, what did we do? I hate you. I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. People to this day hate God in spite of what he's done on their behalf. While we still shook our fist in his face, his spirit opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus so that we would receive salvation, grace, mercy, and everlasting love. It's undeserved hope. It is completely, completely unmerited favor. I did nothing. I brought nothing to the table to earn or gain the salvation that I've been given in any way. So when I stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? I start to say, well, I, no. But I, no. And no. Nothing. He loved me first. I did not put my faith in him apart from his spirits, opening my eyes to the truth of him. He loved me first. What did I do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Jesus paid it all. Most of it to him I owe. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. My salvation is utterly dependent on Jesus Christ alone. And in that fact, that the entirety of our salvation is the action of God, along with a humility before him, comes a complete, a strong, secure, confidence in the salvation that I have. If I did nothing to earn or gain this before God, if if I had nothing to do with enacting my own salvation, then my salvation in Christ is as sure, it, it is as secure as Jesus Christ himself. I cannot break what I did not make. Which we'll talk about next week when we do one more doctrinal principle and we look at the security of the saints. Now some would argue that this doctrine that we've looked at today can begin to dismiss the necessity of sharing or proclaiming the gospel to the world. I mean, they will say that if God sovereignly calls those whom he will, he will call them regardless of you. You don't matter so much anymore, so why bother? But let's look at the facts. How did you, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, how did you come to faith? How did you hear the call of God? How were your eyes opened? Somebody told you, didn't they? Somebody told you about Jesus. That's 2 Thessalonians passage one more time. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the hearing of the gospel, 
Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when it says preach, it doesn't just mean me. It means every last believer in this building. Every last believer in this family of Christ. God works through the proclamation of his word through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to turn the hearts of minds of those whom he called to faith in Jesus. This is how he has chosen to work. This is how he initiates his call. You. Us. So we need to take to heart his call for us to share what we know so that others can have the same salvation, that same eternal life, that we have. Well, one thing that this doctrine does take off our plates is the responsibility of heart change in someone else. It is not up to me to save anyone, only to proclaim the gospel graciously and in love. You do not fail by sharing the gospel whether they receive it or not. We only fail in our call if we don't share the gospel. Heart change is in the hand of God. So being called by God ourselves through the preaching of his word, let us humbly and with all confidence proclaim the gospel in our soil, in our community, and to the ends of the earth. That God's Spirit would work through us to affect the salvation of those around us as He calls them to faith and opens their eyes to the truth of Christ through the proclamation of His Word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your gracious, merciful, and loving call upon our hearts that we would gather here and worship you and know the God of our salvation, that we would be reconciled to the God of our creation. We praise you for these things, for they are not of our own making, they are not of our own doing, but you, Lord, stepped into this earth, you took on flesh, and you gave that flesh in the cross in my place, in our place, that we would know you. You opened our eyes by your Spirit that we would receive that sacrifice. Lord, we praise you that our salvation is not of our own doing, but it is yours. It is that good. Lord, we praise you and pray that you would use us as tools in, our, in, in your hand. Use us as tools of the gospel that others would hear and know that you are the God of their creation and their salvation as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.